I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our coverage of Israel-Palestine, the bombing of Gaza, and related topics, this time with journalist Eric Margolis, who's been a longtime commentator on issues related to the Middle East, South Asia, and Islam. He's covered a number of the Middle East wars over the years and is the author of the book American Raj, Liberation or Domination, Resolving the Conflict Between the West and the Muslim World. Eric is a very outspoken and often controversial figure. I'm not sure we agree on every point, but I think he is someone who has had a lot of experience talking about the region and specifically about Israel-Palestine. He was introduced to the topic, as you'll find out in the conversation to follow, when he was very young, I think around six years old. So I wanted to have Eric on and discuss what is currently transpiring from his point of view. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with Eric Margolis. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that is always insightful. I've been reading his work since my teens. Uh, He's willing to go places where a lot of people wouldn't be willing to go. He has uh, some incisive thoughts, as always, on issues related to the Muslim and Arab world. Eric Margulis, author of American Raj, Liberation or Domination. How are you doing? Well, I'm uh, wrapped up in all these terrible events that are going in Gaza now, and uh, one really doesn't know where to go with this. It's uh, making the head spin and a bloody disaster for the Palestinians. You want to start with uh, the October 7th attack. I don't want to spend, you know, uh, the whole time we have on it, but just briefly, is there anything you want to say about it? And I know... Uh, There's a term that I I think you've used when it comes to uh, civilian deaths before, uh, worse than a crime, a mistake. Maybe you can talk about that line that you've uh, used before. Very apropos line. I just came back from Paris, and that is the line that was used by by Talleyrand, uh, Napoleon's foreign minister, uh, describing the murder of the Duke of Donguin. Uh, who might have been a young pretender to the throne of France. And he was killed, and uh, Talleyrand said, uh, a, a worse than a crime, a mistake. And uh, that's just what this is now. But it's happened, and we have to deal with it. If you could, 
Uh, could you give some background? I, I think I have a, a, a few listeners from Canada that are very familiar with you and uh, actually uh, recommended you. And I said, you know, I have to have Eric on because uh, it's been so long. But maybe for listeners that are unfamiliar uh, with your background, you can talk a little bit about your journey towards uh, writing about and, and doing some of the really most incisive journalism on the Muslim and Arab world and the Israel-Palestine issue? Well, thank you. I'm a native-born New Yorker, Manhattan. And uh, I uh, lived in Egypt and in Switzerland and in the West Indies and in Paris, London, uh, Toronto. Uh, I've been living around. It's like sleeping around, living around different places. And But my primary interest uh, has always been uh, international relations, foreign affairs. I'm a graduate of the Foreign Service School at Georgetown University. Almost went into the U.S. Dip- diplomatic corps, but then realized that I was too outspoken to be a diplomat. And so instead, I've become a, uh, an irritating journalist. What's the one thing, before we get into the nitty-gritty uh of what has transpired in the past 30 days that you think Americans uh, and just maybe the Western world in general uh, fails to understand about this issue and I would say the plight of the Palestinians? Well, Americans always deal, uh, are at a disadvantage in international affairs because we don't study geography. And I think I was the last generation of Georgetown where they even had classes in geography. It's become a non-subject. It's been replaced by dancing with the stars and rubbish on TV. So uh, we don't study history. Uh, We have, in my view, a very poor education system. Uh, I was at a dinner party in France and talking to people who know all about the United States. They know about the EU. They know about the Middle East. Uh, we, well, we're so big and so distant that uh, it's, we're not up to date on most other countries, unlike the French and British, who are excellent colonial powers because they studied and understood where they were. Could you speak a little bit to uh, the bombing happening right now and also uh, how you view the October 7th attack? I believe, as some others have, uh, such as um, Ian Lustig and uh, a number of academics I've spoken to, that you view the October 7th attack as essentially amounting to a prison break or a prison riot. Yes, Yes, I did. And uh, they are the inevitable result of what's happened with the Palestinians, because these are these people who are twice refugees. I mean, they, they didn't just come from nowhere. These people lived in what's now southern Israel, Galilee, as it's known. And uh, they were ethnically cleansed from this area. And the human refuse, practically, forced into this horrible Gaza Strip. I've been there many times. It's just a dump. Uh, Imagine the Bronx with palm trees. And uh, it's it's a disaster, but it's an open-air prison. And as happens in many prisons, the inmates uh, finally one day just couldn't take it anymore. The Israelis have been restricting their water, restricting their food, even their vitamin intake. Uh, and uh, so these people are being starved and harassed and occasionally bombed and uh, snipers are sent in to kill them. It's Yeah, it's- I, I was going to say for oh. listeners that don't know, not to interrupt you, but uh, Israel has a policy of bombing every so often, which they call mowing the lawn or mowing the grass. I mean, it's it's very disturbing. Well, you're right. And uh, it's... Uh, it's a, anybody who can watch one and two thousand pound bombs being dropped on a civilian neighborhood and a collapsing entire buildings and over eleven thousand Palestinians killed now half of them children. Uh, it's uh, it's horrible. It's a crime. As we're going back to Talleyrand, uh, worse 
than a crime, it's a mistake. In terms of, you said you've been to Gaza before. Can you give my idea, uh, my listeners an idea of what Gaza is like, what your experiences were like there? I don't know when the last time you've uh, been there. I know certain journalists like Gideon Levy in Israel uh, who writes for Retz, he's not even really allowed into Gaza anymore by the Israeli government. Uh, So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what your experiences have been when you were in Gaza uh, and also, uh, I'd I'd like to note it's a very very small piece of land. I I think it's only, you know, like twenty five miles in length. But uh, maybe you could comment more on that. Well, it's just a little bit of land on the on the edge of the ocean that nobody really wanted, and all the Palestinians who were ethnically cleansed from the Galilee region or the southern Israel region. Uh, were shoved into there, ended up there, as we, as we were saying, living on uh, threadbare rations, uh, lack of nutrition, lack of clean water, don't have enough power. It is, it's, a, it's a big prison, and uh, they're miserable, and they're volatile, and every once in a while they blow up. What caused this latest uh, eruption uh, was something that never mentioned in the U.S. media, and that is that uh, they were these, the new ultra right wing government in Israel has announced pants plans to expand Jewish settlements again, and there are already seven hundred and fifty to eight hundred thousand armed Jewish settlers in the area, and I know these people; they're, they're very fanatical. Uh, they're very determined. A lot of them are from Brooklyn and Yonkers, New York, and they uh, want to kick out the Palestinians and go back to uh, biblical Israel. Yeah, I, I know in your latest column, uh, Make a Desert and Call it Peace, you actually talk about speaking uh, with people from the settler movement. I know some people are starting to wake up to how bad that situation is when it comes to the West Bank. Uh, Could you speak about your experience interviewing these people? Well, I will. I mentioned, you know, uh, years ago back when I was covering the wars in in Southern Africa, and I used to talk to a lot of these Boer settlers, Dutch Boer settlers uh, near. And these people have been there since the 1600s. They were Johnny come lately's. But they were very militant, and their view was that uh, that black people are not as the same as white people, and that they were had to be treated in a special way and given a lot of guidance, uh, or kicked out as the case. They might have well these 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 Jewish settlers in Gaza. Uh, they have gone from twenty five to. 250,000 to 750,000 now in recent years. A lot of it uh, money from the states that is tax deductible. And they, uh, they're they there and they're determined to kick out all the Arabs. Where the Arabs will go, we don't know. One thing I think that's important to note is that I, I was looking at the numbers. Uh, so with 2014 and um, Operation Protective Edge, as, as Israel called it, you know, that lasted for about, I want to say, uh, about a month and two weeks, uh, maybe a few days more than that. Uh, but that killed over 2,000 uh, Gazans, in, including children. This has gone on for the past. 30 or so days, and we have a kill count of over 10,000. This time, I think, is very different. And uh, it's very disturbing to me that people are not noting uh, that the kill count this time around is larger than what we saw last time. Could you speak to that? Yes, it's, it's been a rule of thumb in Israel for a long time that any Israelis are killed by the Arabs the retaliation rate is times 10. So they kill 10 Arabs for every uh, Jewish inhabitant that's killed. Uh, Israel is very biblically vengeful-minded 
right now. And uh, this particular attack was a big scare because it hit some of their deep-rooted fears in Israel that day, uh, that their airport might be blocked and they can't get out, you know, that the country's going to be overrun or the Arabs are going to murder them in their beds. Uh, it, it's a very fraught situation, as the British would say. Could you speak to... I mean, maybe this is going too uh, deep into your to your own career, but what was your first experience covering, um, you know, Palestine, and how is it different from other areas of the world that you've covered in other areas of the Middle East? Well, the Palestine came into my consciousness because of my my mother. My mother was a, a female journalist, and uh, she was one of the first women to go and uh, to travel across the Middle East on her own, which was unheard of in those days, interviewed Nasser, King Hussein, all kinds of people. And uh, when she was there, that's in the early 1950s, okay, uh, the official party line was that Palestine is a land without for no, a, a land without people for a people with no land. Very, very catchy phrase. Um, and it worked very well because that was the general idea in the States. Nobody knew that there were between 750 and 800,000 refugees who had been driven out of their homes who were living in cardboard containers and tin shacks. And they are the parents of today's inhabitants of Gaza. So I subsequently went many times to the Middle East, everywhere I used to go. And I remember when I went uh, crossing from Israel into Jordan, for example, uh, I would always go in the Arab line at security. Uh, I didn't feel it right that I'd be in special status. And I wanted to see how these people were treated. And they were treated like, I don't say dogs, but I love dogs. So treated like cattle. So since you've since you first covered Palestine, how how has 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 the situation changed since you first covered it? I mean, other than to say the obvious, which is it's gotten much, much worse with each passing year and decade. Well, uh it has. Uh you you've described it perfectly. And uh, the uh, in, before that, we had a resigned generation of older Palestinians. The Palestinians were very peaceful people. They were largely uh, small merchants uh, in the Middle East, and uh, they uh, they were not a militant people by any means. But we have a new generation of young Palestinians that have grown up who are fed up and don't want to accept the current situation. The the Afghan victory in Afghanistan was a very important event. Americans haven't realized that yet, but America was defeated by, by Islamic warriors who had no heavy weapons, just courage, and, uh, and drove the American military out of Afghanistan. Certainly many Palestinians are saying the same thing to themselves these days won't happen but they believe it could you speak about just the amount of military spending the u.s is doing not just with this war but also uh there's a lot of military spending with ukraine uh and i know people have strong opinions on uh you know ukraine and some of the other wars that we've been involved in but you know at, at the end of the day i feel like uh the amount of spending, when that spending runs amok, as they say, it can become the real threat to security that people miss. You're right. It's well, it's under it's undermining the strength of the United States. I mean, my hotel, hometown in Europe, bridges are falling apart, sewer mains are breaking, pipes are exploding, uh, streets have big holes in them. Uh, this you don't find this in Europe. There's a, a widespread decrepitude 
in the States. And that's one reason, because we're lavishing so, so much money on military affairs that we've become addicted to military spending, which we don't need to do. Look, we were defeated in Vietnam. I was there. We were defeated in Iraq. We were defeated in Afghanistan. Uh, what else? Where else we've gotten? There, the derriere is kicked. Uh, we're the greatest power on earth, and yet uh, Somalia, I could add, uh, we have done very bad. We we just want more and more defense spending, and part of the problem is that because a lot of these military factories were purposely put in states that are important to the electoral process. And uh, nobody wants to close down a defense of defense plant. It's wrong. It's actually offense defense plant uh, with an election coming up. So we are committed to military spending, and and Biden uh, has run amok uh, in his spending uh, for against uh, COVID welfare payments. Uh, military spending, money for Israel, money for uh, Ukraine. Uh, the result is that, we, and we have a what three three trillion three three trillion dollar national debt. So this is all borrowed money, borrowed on the national credit card. Surefire way to wreck your country and undermine it. And we're so obsessed with military affairs. Look at us. We're we're sort of sending billions more to Ukraine uh, to a really sleazy, uh, mysterious war that we're waging there, plus $14 billion or something now for Israel. In terms of the endgame, what, what do you see as the endgame for Israel being? And I, I guess, in other words, maybe you can explain why. Why has Israel done things in in years past, like the annexation of the Golan Heights? Oh, why are they allowing settlers to rampage uh, in parts of the West Bank, such as Suwara? What is the end game at work here? I'm not sure there's a clear end game, except on the right wing of Israeli politics uh, is the idea of more land. Uh, the, the greater Israel, right? Greater Israel, more expansion, more land, uh, hell with the Arabs. And uh, even Ben Gurion, the founder of Israel, said the same thing too. He said, it's not up to us to curtail the expansion. So Israel now has eyes on southern Lebanon uh, and again, parts of Syria as well. Uh, I think you're going to see that occupied by Israeli forces. Israel is very strong. So you, you, how do you see this? I, I, I know, I, I know that you're hesitant to call it even a war. It, it's, I mean, from your point of view, it's a, a collective punishment. How do you see this panning out uh, between Israel and Hamas? Um, what's your general sort of? analysis of how things may go because uh you know i i think at the end of the day things just look very rough for the the gazan people i uh, i have great sympathy for them uh they are absolutely lost they're starving they're sick they're locked away in this giant prison camp uh they're now going to become the target of 750,000 armed Israeli settlers who were told to go after them and get their land and cut down their trees and kill their donkeys. Uh, it's it's a horrible situation. So the, the Israelis can withstand a lot of this. It has sympathizers everywhere, and it's been very clever in knowing how to manipulate American opinion. And there's no reason why Israel can't continue on this way as long as it's unlimited access to American money and arms. Well, I, I think the big issue in a lot of ways is just these uh, these groups like APAC, which uh, just are basically the the network that makes up the Israel lobby. Yes. 
That's correct. And they're very, very strong. I remember the case of William Fulbright, who was the finest American expert on foreign affairs. And he was, uh, it came to be that he was regarded as soft on Israel. And he lost his position because they brought in somebody to run against them and poured money into the district. Uh, so you speak against Israel at your own political and health peril. I, I was going to say even, uh, you know, I just did a whole show on this, but there was even that showdown between uh, George H.W. Bush and, uh, you know, the APAC lobby and uh, Yitzhak Shamir. That's right. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned again in my column, I, there was a time uh, when President Eisenhower, I'm old enough to have seen his inauguration. I was one of our finest presidents. And uh, Eisenhower was very no-nonsense. No and when Israel invaded Sinai with the British and the French in an effort to seize the Suez Canal, uh, the uh, Eisenhower, they occupied Sinai, and Eisenhower said, get get the hell out of Sinai right now. And the Israelis left. Uh, today, that's not possible. Look at look at a feeble President Biden, who may not live out the year, uh, who is his party makes a great portion of its funds from pro-Israel donors, uh, is not... Uh, is going to not lead the road to, to peace. Could you talk a little bit about, I only had a few more questions, but I, I want you to talk a little bit about your work, American Raj, because that's how I became familiar with you. And uh, of course, listening to your great interviews on the Scott Horton show, maybe you could talk a little bit about American Raj and uh, the basic uh, ideas put forth in that book and how it relates to what is happening now. Well, the book uh, ran the number two uh, Governor, Governor General's Award in Canada. The book was very frank, very straightforward, uh, trying to show how America is really a dominant colonial power in the Middle East. And when we hear President Biden, their secretary, what's his name, uh, talking about uh, about supporting democracy and stuff like that, it's revolting because America is the main colonial power. It replaced the British, and uh, it runs all these little tin pot countries, what Trump would call shithole countries. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about Trump? Uh, what's your basic take on Trump as uh, as it stands with his sort of policies on the Middle East and Israel? Well, I have a very confused position. I was interviewed by the Trump uh, campaign to four years ago, uh, I couldn't deal with them. I couldn't be with them because then my opinions were so totally different from theirs. Uh, and the friends of mine who are in politics said, Eric, you've got to go with the team. You can't come and say, wait a minute, I don't agree with that. But uh, I, what I think about Trump is that uh, Trump is a do-it-yourself guy. He has no knowledge. He's surrounded himself with low-grade people uh who we have such good capable people in the united states why trump would delve into the basement of american politics for some people who were there uh, eludes me. i guess it's used his real estate business in queens but uh the trump did a couple of good things he he, he said he was uh, he ordered the money, the budget for Afghanistan cut, and that ended this unconscionable war in Afghanistan. The other generals and politicians and pundits were too scared uh, for their own reputations. Uh, Trump just shut it down, and I was I, I applaud him for doing that. Uh, he knew it was a lost war. Uh, but on the other hand, he has some screwy ideas for uh, Europe and uh, for the Middle East, very pro-Israel. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I feel like the Abraham Accords just, I mean, everyone will talk about it as, uh, especially right-wingers, oh, it it was going, it, it brought peace, we were so close to peace. But they're only talking about normalization with, uh, like, Saudi Arabia and Israel. They're, 
it it's literally the Abraham Accords, in my view, threw Palestinians completely under the bus and said, you know, this situation, we're just going to shelf it for good. Well, they they are the height of hypocrisy and two-faced behavior. They were these so-called accords were just the public emergence of the game of footsie that was being played between Israel and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and, and the other Arab dictatorships. They uh, they were uh, undemocratic regimes that run on bribes uh, in Washington and in the Middle East. And they uh, they meant nothing because everybody knew that they were a fraud. I know you have... Uh... As many do uh, who followed this issue, uh, have I, I would say not the best view of um, a, a group like the Palestinian Authority. Uh, in other words, I think you and others would say they're very corrupt. Uh, one thing that's been reported in the media as of late is that Netanyahu and his coalition government, leading up to October seventh, were in their own way, propping up Hamas to divide and conquer the Palestinians. Uh, what is your view on that? Do you think that's been, uh, people make too much of that or? Well, I think it's very important. The uh, people forget that Hamas was healthfully created or is, is assisted into creation by the Israelis. All the and, way back in the 80s, yeah. Yes, and they they murdered Sheikh Yassin, who was the leader of the movement, but uh, it was designed to split the PLO under Yasser Arafat and create a, a rival leadership. Um, what they got was a bunch of angry 20-somethings with, with automatic rifles who now want to revenge. That's not a worldwide terrorist movement, as the Israelis and the Americans say. It's just a big mistake. I was going to add to that one thing that uh, has been reported is that, you know, Netanyahu in, in past years has said, we control the height of the flame. In <laughs> other words, he can manage Gaza and something like this will not happen on his watch because he's so smart. He can manage it. This to me feels like a classic example of blowback. Well, it is, but I remember Netanyahu also said to his aides, uh, don't worry about the U.S., I'm in charge of the U.S. And when we saw Netanyahu go to Washington and address Congress and the entire U.S. Congress jumping up and down in ecstasy is to applaud him, you realize that money talks and credit walks. There's actually a, a leaked video people can find of uh, Netanyahu saying that all the way back in the Clinton era. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that video, but he basically he was he was he didn't know he was on camera, but he basically said, "Oh, you know, I, I can get the Americans to do this, this, and that. It's it's very easy to shift their perspective." Quite right, quite, and it is it is all. Oh, look at Senator Mendez of the Menendez of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. They found gold and bullion and cash in his, his house. And he was being, it's what the Arabs call bakshish uh, from Saudi Arabia to influence uh, U.S. policy. It happens all, of, all over. In terms of this retaliation uh, that Israel was taking, uh, as you call it, a terrible retribution that is falling on Gaza's Palestinians. You know, I'm reminded of Pat Buchanan, and I, I don't come from the same sort of um, political milieu as as uh, you or Pat do, but I think Pat has made some important points, especially in the past when it comes to other bombing campaigns that Israel has done with Gaza. Namely, he has pointed out that when you bomb Gaza like this, you're really just radicalizing the youth there. Um, and, you know, if your stated goal is to stop Hamas, this is actually creating more Hamas supporters. 
Well, yes, of course. And not only that, but what's disturbing is, is that it's creating hatred for the United States across the Muslim world. I've been at some Muslim conferences recently where America is spoke, spoken of as a devil because of what it's doing. And it's also spreading anti-Semitism, which, which disturbs me, because we see it all around in Europe. I was just in Paris. People are very angry at Israel, and they blame the Jews for that, uh, rather than the extreme right-wing cabal that is running Israel now. Could you speak a bit more to uh, how the Arab and Muslim world look at the uh, situation because I, I think, you know, some will say, well, uh, you know, states like Saudi Arabia actually want to get along with Israel. Uh, but, you know, in terms of the actual people, I think there's a difference between, you know, the, what I would call the corrupt Gulf monarchies, for instance, and the people of those countries. Uh, I think there's a stark divide between the two when it comes to Palestine. It is said in the Middle East that uh, Dubai is the best-run Indian city in the whole world. And uh, they're not even Arabs uh, by the majority there. But yes, uh, the, the, the Arab view that I've met uh, is, uh, on one hand, uh, fear and loathing of Israel and the real uh, hatred of Israel and belief that Israel is a evil expansionist power. But on the other hand, there's great admiration for Israel and for the things that Israel does. They're referred to as the cousins. And uh, the Arabs, uh, they get along quite well with the Israelis. Uh, they understand each other. The Israelis are so clever. Uh, it's unfortunate. And I, as I wrote in my book you know, 10 years ago or more, that I said Israel is going to get sucked into the affairs of the Arab world one of these days, whether it's these Abraham Accords or not. And it's going to get caught up in all these nasty Arab rivalries and civil wars. Uh, just to reiterate that, do you think there's a difference between uh, the leadership of these Arab and, and Muslim states uh, and the sort of populace of those states? Oh, definitely. Well, we in America, we're largely responsible for engendering uh, a, a system of, of nasty despots and dictators across the Middle East. That was the point of my book, American Raj. Raj, by the way, is you know, what the British used to call their rule over India. And uh, it means rule in Hindi. And the uh, they put all these ugly dictators in power. Look at General Sisi in Egypt, the most populous of all the Arab countries, a horrible little tin pot dictator. They torture people. They assassinate people. Uh, it's uh, a very bad example. Tunisia, uh, Morocco, poor Jordan, the, probably the most decent and likable Arab state. But still, these are all colonial satrapies of the United States. And, and of course, as you put it, I, I think you've basically, I, I think in the past few articles said that, you know, Egypt, the, the Saudis, these Gulf states, I mean, they're essentially cowards when it comes to dealing with Palestine. Oh, they are. They're very scared of the Palestinians. For one major reason, because the Palestinians have brought uh, some democratic elections in Gaza that scared the hell out of the rest of the Arabs, uh, and they they're these are dictator dictatorships. They don't want any elections or variants of opinions. Before we start closing out, can you talk about how you see this affecting the U.S. going forward, uh, and maybe even? Israel going forward, because I've often said uh, or had guests that have said that there's an argument to be made that the U.S.-Israel special relationship has been harmful to both Israel and the U.S. Uh, you know, in fact, that is the argument put forward by John Mersheimer and Stephen Walt in their book on the Israel lobby. A lot of people don't realize that they're saying this is bad for Israelis as well. 
uh, that gets glossed over a lot. How do you see this uh, going forward? Because I, I think the global South is looking at this and saying, you know, we're on the side of Palestinians. Uh, any possibility of the global South and the U.S. Uh, mending relations there, I think that's out the window now. I, I think this is going to be very harmful uh, to a lot of diplomatic efforts around the world. It is, and it hurts our reputation uh, and character as Americans. Back in the 50s, there was a Jewish rabbi named Elmer Berger, and a very, very wise man. And Berger came in, he warned about this. He said, again, America getting involved and is, is now in the Middle East is going to boomerang back on the East, is going to promote right-wing government in the U.S. It's going to uh, repression, uh, uh, all kinds of nasty crackdowns on people, as we saw during the Bush administration. Uh, it, it's it's not going to be America. And what's happening now is that the the American government is seen by many as so corrupt and bought and sold that it uh, one day there will be a backlash. And I fear it'll take place against Jewish Americans who will have been seen and sold America down the road or misled America because of their passion for an imaginary Jewish state. I was going to say, I've spoken to people like, um, you know, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who uh, served as chief of staff under Colin Powell. Very good man. Well, yeah, Wilkerson said to me, one of his biggest concerns is that, you know, you have these, I, I would call them fanatical ideologues of the Likud party. And, and they're not just in Israel, but I also think there's fanatical pro-Israel ideologues in the U.S. And what I think is concerning is that these ideologues, in my view, long term, uh, are actually endangering the lives of uh, Jewish people in the U.S. Uh, because, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think there are people in the U.S. that will look at these pro-Israel ideologues and uh, like Kudniks, as some people have called them, and start blaming Jews entirely for it, which in my view is very wrong, but I think that's what could happen at some point. I agree entirely with you, and I worry about it. And uh, they you know, just turn on CNN, and you could see who really runs that station. It's, uh, it's very unfortunate. It's very un-American. And America could have prevented this current disaster in Gaza uh, simply by forcing the Israelis to stop expanding settlements with their armed settlers. But uh, America doesn't want to do this. It's, America is so in bed now with the Israelis. I don't know if they'll ever be independent. I think it's a very dark time, especially for Palestinians. And I, I've known a number of Palestinian Americans and Palestinians over the years. You know, I've broken bread with uh, leaders in the movement. You know, people like Hanan Ashrawi. Uh, so it's a very trying time for Palestinians. At the same time, I wonder, you know, I don't think Israel has been able to ever get rid of the Palestinian issue. Is there any silver lining? I mean, could this be, uh, where do you see this headed? I mean, is there hope for the Palestinians? Because they haven't given up yet. And I, to be honest, I don't see them giving up any time in the future either. I think that this this horrible situation has been with me all my life uh, since about six years old, and uh, it's going to continue indefinitely because the Israelis have no reason to make uh, a peace or really treat the Palestinians decently. They want their land. They're determined to shove them into the desert or out of the region, or get the U.S. to take them, or Canada, that's the latest thing one hears. Uh, it's very negative and dire, and uh, it's really sad and depressing. But I mean, I don't think the Palestinian people are going to take that lying down. I mean, th there's talk of, uh, well, we can just push them into the Sinai. And I just, I'm sorry, but I don't see the Palestinians... Uh, just accepting that. Maybe maybe I'm too hopeful for Palestinians being able to uh, resist these uh, excesses 
of the ultra-right in Israel. Look at events this past week with these columns of people being forced uh, to wear into the road, into the semi-deserts in the area. It could happen. And the, the thing is, in the States, with, with the control of media, uh, they're going to blast things about terrorism, and they're coming for Weekogan, Illinois, if we don't stop them in Palestine. And we've been down this road before. Look look at the Bush administration uh, arm-twisted the U.S. into the invasion of Iraq. It's the same process. It'll happen again. In closing, for people that ask the question, what will it take uh, for peace, uh, what do you want to say to them? Because I, I think, in my view, the answer is reflected in some of my other guests. I just had um, Professor Juan Colon, and he said point blank, you know, until there's an Isra- uh, until there's a Palestinian state, you know, and these people that have been pushed out of their land, I mean, with the Nakba or the catastrophe, the ethnic cleansing, uh, get formal recognition as a state and a people, uh, this could go on forever. We we in the United States have vetoed over 40 UN resolutions trying to set up this sensible direction. Uh, and maybe, inshallah, it will come one day, but it's not coming anytime soon. And now there's the there's talk of uh, invading Lebanon and, and going wrecking what's left of Syria. And the Turks might get involved in attacking Iran. So there's fuel for this fire, plenty, and not much hope for peace. Is there anything I missed in this conversation uh, or any important points that you want to make uh, to my listeners about what's currently happening? I was, well, I mentioned as the title of my column today, a uh, favorite saying of Tacitus, the Roman historian, who said they make a desert and call it peace. And that's just what's happening now. You, what, what do you mean by that? What, um can you well, explain that quote? They they destroy everything and say, look, we have peace now. There's no uh, opposition to us because we killed everybody or blown up every build, building. That's uh, that's what's known as Carthaginian peace. Yeah, it, I mean, the grim situation, it does seem like, I, I forget which Israeli official said it, but... Uh, one of the Israeli officials uh, after the October 7th event happened said, you know, we're going to get rid of all of their buildings. We're going to bomb it, reduce it to rubble, and all that will be left is tents. You know, I mean, essentially, they're turning it into a super camp. That's where they started off when my mother went there in the 1950s. And they were living in cardboard boxes and tents and and, and shelters made from tin cans. Uh, and that's where they're headed again. And right now, the, the only good Palestinian leader there was was Yasser Arafat. and uh, But he was murdered, I believe. And uh, today, look, look at the Palestinian authorities. They've got this doddering old fool of a Mahmoud Abbas who's senile. And uh, they've got another guy named Dalan who's worked for Israeli intelligence. These are all uh, quizzlings and, and stooges and not any rec- reputable, decent people. I want to mention real quick, since you mentioned Arafat, I think it's really interesting. Whenever you talk about Arafat, and I saw Hillary Clinton on The View today bring up Arafat and say, well, you know, Arafat didn't accept a good deal in 2000 with the Camp David summit. I find that very interesting because we have the testimony that uh, people can look this up. The testimony of Robert Malley, who worked for the Clinton administration on the issue of Camp David 2000, he even said it's not true. It wasn't a generous offer. And there were reasons that Arafat had for, for you know, backing out of the negotiations. And this is completely ignored in any discussions of Arafat and of this history. And not only that, but. Robert Malley, for his efforts and his pointing this out, I mean, he is the special envoy for Iran now, 
but he got called a vicious anti-Semite, viciously anti-Israel. And it's the same story we've seen with figures like Ambassador Chaz Freeman. Uh, Maybe you could just comment on some of those observations that I made. Well, the 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 technique that's used by is Israel, which, by the way, has been a million Russian in, inhabitants, and some of them were some of the old KGB guys who I used to know in the Middle East, and they their specialty in Russia was anybody who opposes the Soviet position is attacked mercilessly and denounced and scourged and uh, uh, and. They've done that now, and anybody who proposes proposes a moderate approach is blasted as a terror lover, and uh, it's uh, it's an old technique. It's sad. It works. Do you have any view on that? Uh, the talk whenever people bring up, uh, well, you know, Arafat turned down the deal in two thousand. The Camp David. That's said a it- lie. That's a bit. That's a, a big. But baloney, but it was it was to cover the fact of Israeli intransigence. And then that's where we needed an American president who was strong enough to bang heads together and say there's going to be a police, otherwise you're not going to have peace, otherwise you're not going to get your 30, 40, 50 billion dollars this year. But nobody has the guts to do that. Eric, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, can you let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work. I believe all your articles can be found on on your website and also maybe Lou Rockwell or... Yes, or just general search uh, on the internet on Eric Margolis, M-A-R-G-O-L-I-S, dot com. I've been banned from everywhere for speaking too bluntly. And as a journalist, I write to try and get at the truth, not for a job. And uh, this gets you into trouble. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax News. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the always outspoken, often controversial, Eric Margolis. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax News, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.